Something I've noticed over the years is that when you study history and talk about history and interact with the public about history, you can't help but notice that the general public perception of the past is often filled with blind spots. These are eras where there appears to be little public appetite for the events that took place within them. Now maybe it's because nothing exciting happened during those eras, and by exciting I mean calamitous, disastrous and someone screaming, dear God, dear God, make it stop. Or maybe it's because something exceptionally exciting happened either just before or just after that era, and that event kind of sucks up all the attention in the room. Certainly, I think this is what happens to King Edward the Confessor. Before him, we had the whole saga of his father's regime falling apart at the seams, followed by the cycle of Danish invasions and conquest of England and then the Danish kings of England. And after him comes William the Conqueror and the whole Norman conquest. Yeah, that sucks up all the attention in the room. And as such, the age of Edward the Confessor tends to get overlooked by people. And it really, no, really should not be. The events that took place during the rule of Edward and their impact upon London are remarkably profound and shape the very nature of the city moving forward from here. Ultimately, it was an era of political compromise where real politique won out over any political argument. It was an age of immense propaganda, both religious and political. It was an era where we saw subtle social change and where what it meant to be English really was quite flexible. And it was also a time where, accidentally, the nation of England became a big deal, both diplomatically and economically. It became quite rich and surprisingly powerful. And these twin pillars of Edward's state were manifested in the city that had, through the long misadventures that we've followed over the previous 39 chapters, become the centre of English monetary policy and its military. Again, to repeat a mantra that I've said many times before, London, at this point in history, was not the capital of England. But during the reign of Edward the Confessor, it certainly became something. The last 21 chapters of this podcast, I've given the subtitle The Kingdom of London. And I called it that because for me, during this whole era, it was more than just a large town at this point. It was a polity unto itself. London has been at total odds with the rest of the nation of England, standing defiant to every other part and insisting the country bends to its will. But at other times, it would go along happily with what everyone else was doing. And when it did that, it had this remarkable ability to place itself at the heart of the nation. Hi, my name is Saul. And I'd like to welcome you to The Story of London, a podcast dedicated to presenting the tale of the City of London as a single narrative, 
each episode simply what happened next from the previous one. Each chapter is self-contained unto itself, but also takes us a little further along this amazing and, in my opinion, fascinating tale. We explore basically the story of England and the world around it through the lens of looking at one geographic place. And in this chapter, we're going to look at the depth and complexity of how London's devout population would have responded to their new king. And also, how they responded to a series of very calamitous events. Welcome then to chapter 40 of the story of London. Resurrection. begin this episode in the year 1042. The 20-something-year-old Harthacanute, Canute, King of England and Denmark, the son of Dowager Queen Emma of Normandy and Canute, the King of England, Denmark, Norway and parts of Sweden, had just dropped dead at a wedding celebration over in Lambeth. His half-brother, who had been exiled for over 20 years in Normandy, the much older Edward, son of the Dowager Queen Emma of Normandy and her first husband, King Ethelred of England, was suddenly the only real candidate to inherit the throne. And Edward's reign seems to have gotten off to a rather ominous start. Shortly after Hathacanute died, Edward was chosen to be king by the Witangamot meeting in London. But the record for that year paints a very stark picture. Quote, All that year was the season very severe in many and various respects, both from the inclemency of the weather and the loss of the fruits of the earth. More cattle died this year than any man ever remembered either from various diseases or from the severity of the weather." Unquote. Please remember this is England a thousand years ago. The loss of a single crop meant that people went hungry. The loss of livestock compounded this. It would require a sophisticated and surprisingly developed nation to prevent this situation becoming a famine. Alas, England, for all its robust economic infrastructure, was not able to prevent a famine, merely mitigate its effects to begin with anyway. We also know from other records that in the winter of 1042, early that November, some sort of major flooding occurred on the eastern side of the southern North Sea, the Dutch coastal communities which some have suggested was caused by a significant storm surge event. And that probably, if it did happen, would have meant there was flooding on the English side of that water, so we're talking the coasts of Kent, Essex and the Thames estuary. So what would people see in the first year of Edward's rule? We'd see nature turn against the nation itself. Ferocious weather destroys crops, disease wipes out cattle, 
and a storm surge possibly floods the east coast. Now, traditionally, the way we historians portray things is to suggest that this would have perhaps triggered the idea that the piously Christian residents of London would have seen this as a sign from the Almighty, right? A sign that maybe the new king's reign had incurred God's displeasure. Well, you see, here is where I admit a moment of laziness in my narrative of London, but I'll excuse myself, as it's one most historians also do. You see, we know that to say London was a zealously Christian place in this era is entirely correct, but we tend not to explain that this means it could also be quite abstract in its beliefs. We tend to allow the modern perception of Christianity fill in the blanks in listeners' minds. When we say Christianity, we tend to think of contemporary American version of it, the one where everything is lifted from the Bible and all theological debates really come down about how one personally interprets scripture. But a thousand years ago, Christianity was nothing like that whatsoever. All Christians at the time had the Bible, sure, but they were also all part of a thousand-year conversation that had begun with the death of Christ. Christianity as a religion was fundamentally a dialogue, a conversation spoken by Christians where they discussed what it meant to be a Christian. And this conversation had originally been spoken in Aramaic, moved on to Greek, and for the last few hundred years had been mostly conducted in Latin. It was a dialogue where what it meant to be a Christian, the very definition of the faith, had been established only after intense debates over the centuries before. And these debates were, well, they were still ongoing. And the learned men and women of the church in the 11th century of England were part and parcel of this ongoing dialogue. And as such, their views on things could be often quite subtle and often very intellectualized. So, while it would be very easy for me to say that the residents of London would have taken this series of terrible events as a sign of God's displeasure, that would not be wholly accurate. Why? Well, firstly, the zealous residents of London would have awaited instruction on this from the learned, the experts in theology, the priests, abbots and bishops of England. And as we have seen in previous chapters, when you had a good and very articulate bishop in charge of London, someone like Wolfston, for example, he could tell them that what was going on outside their walls was a sign of the apocalypse, and guess what? They'd believe him. But that also meant that if said clerics had informed the faithful that what was actually happening was more complicated and nuanced, then they would take that also. And... Edward's reign and the significance of what was going on around it was part of a much deeper discussion about God's feelings upon England at the time and it was a discussion that Edward himself was to have an influence upon. And so just to gain a simplistic 
understanding into this multifaceted theological debate, we just need to examine how the learned comprehended the concept of time. You see, for the early medieval scholar, time was linear. Events followed one another in sequence, one after the other, as true for them then as it is for us today. But what was also in the mind of every single learned scholar, and remember, in the 11th century, the church had a kind of monopoly on learned scholars, and every one of them would have looked out and realized that time was also cyclical. The, the concept of the passing of time was this complex thing, and there does seem to be a genuine split within the debates about it between the idea that it passed in a straight line through the ages, but that it also followed the cycle of tide and season, always returning to what had been. The best example of this is to just point out that for anybody who was writing a chronicle of the time, or trying to record events like the monks writing the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, this was very clearly the sixth age of the world. The sixth age? Well, that's based on a theory that was developed by Saint Augustine, Augustine of Hippo, the great Christian scholar. And about 700 years previous to this tale, he'd written this whole treatise on time and how Christians should understand it. In this, Augustine begat the Christian tradition of dating things in thousand-year blocks, or ages. This idea that each age lasts a thousand years was based on a slight misunderstanding of an extract from the second letter of St. Peter, where it says, quote, But of this one thing be not ignorant, my beloved, that one day with the Lord is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day, unquote. And the theory goes that since God created the universe and everything within it in seven days, therefore, if one day equals a thousand years, there will be seven thousand years of history, seven ages of the planet. And to the Christians at the time, it meant that mankind would live through six one-thousand-year periods, or days, with the seventh day, because it was the day of rest, representing a thousand years or uh, an eternity in heaven, or what was also called the world to come, the post-Nikean creed idea that there would be a utopia after the day of judgment. Now, the coming of Christ upon this earth heralded, they felt, the end of the fifth age of mankind. And now, obviously, we were in the sixth age, but remember, we're in the year 1042. These ages are only meant to last a thousand years. So we were clearly in the dying embers of the sixth age, the final age of mankind. And as such, for these scholars, the world was literally suffering from extreme senescence. The idea that the world was aging and decaying slowly. Things were fraying and falling apart. 
Basically, there's this dichotomy between the literal grasp of the world moving in a straight line through history, but also that nature was filled with the cycle of things, the way the tides would rise and fall, the procession of the seasons, the endless cycle of moon and sun rising and falling, the yearly ritual of the feast days of saints, all of life and death appeared to work on a cycle and the only eternal was the concept of God and heaven. All of which basically means, well, it means that historical figures like King David or King Solomon or even recent historical figures like King Edgar they were people who had lived and had their time upon this earth and then they had died. But simultaneously, they were also an archetype, part of a cyclical series of events. So hypothetically, another David or another Solomon or even another Edgar or Alfred the Great could reappear at some time in the future. And that would be as natural as the cycle of the stars in the heaven. And some scholars hoped that this was indeed the case and actively looked for the signs of such men. It is worth noting there was, a, there was an opinion held by some at the time that the heroes of Troy, the Trojan exiles, had, back in the fourth age of mankind, you know, when the world was in its prime, they'd attained their promised land and created the great empire of David and Solomon. And yes, there were also scholars at the time, during this era, who believed that the Trojan exiles were entirely mythical creatures who had no relation to any real event and or biblical event. But for those who advocated such ideas, then it was only a matter of time before similar type figures would return and restore the world to some of its former luster. Thus, when calamity struck England in the first year of Edward's rule, some indeed perhaps saw it as a possible sign of the Almighty's displeasure, but others would have seen it as the sinning essence of the world, the ageing and decrepitude of this earth, and that maybe like some mythical Trojan figure, Edward would return to restore that luster. It was an idea that Edward actually seemed to embrace. He had, after all, spent decades in exile in Normandy. And now, after Canute had died and Harold Harefoot had died and Arthur Canute had died, he probably felt like he was like the Israelites returning from captivity in Babylon, or the Hebrews finally reaching the land of milk and honey after their subjugation in Egypt. This idea, while certainly not the end-all and be-all of Edwin's mentality, was part of the image he constructed about himself. And as such, the famine and weather disasters that so impacted England, which London could have witnessed from behind its giant walls, this would then be part of the legacy of Harthacanute. And more, if it was sent by God himself, then, well... It was because the English had chosen the likes of Harold and Arthur Canute and not their divinely ordained king, Edward, to rule over them all. And it is worth considering that, as much as this sounds like some heavy PR here, Edward may have needed it. Because there is a suggestion 
that while the Witangamot had chosen Edward, not all of England rejoiced at his elevation. And you could see why they maybe would be hesitant. Edward was, after all, the son of King Ethelred Unred, universally felt to be the worst period king period ever period. His rule, the ineptitude within it, the seemingly endless processions of crisis that had almost destroyed the nation several times during his reign, would have made many, I think it's fair to say, not even slightly excited at the elevation of his son to the throne of England. As for how London felt about it, well, we don't know. They had been the polity in England that had most ferociously stood by Ethelred and his son, Edmund Ironsides. When the rest of the country capitulated, they had defied and had been attacked and besieged, and they kept that faith. Of all the places who could, on paper, have been delighted that the son of Ethelred was now on the throne, it would be London. But since those days, massive amounts of Scandinavians had been moved into the city, so who knows for sure? I certainly don't. But I do feel that the idea that the famine and bad weather were sent to punish the land for Harthacanute and that Edward would save England was one that was being pushed and that that narrative was important. And it took a few months to get around. And the reason why I believe that did happen is if you look closely at the passage of time around his first year of rule, You'll see that while there's always a gap between the choosing of the king and the coronation of a king, Edward waited. He waited until the famine began to diminish, and then he waited till the weather began to turn, and then he waited a little longer. Perhaps to cement this image that he was made here to make things better? For me, the proof that this is more than just a speculative theory, is revealed in the fact that when he did finally decide to be crowned King of England over in Winchester, he very specifically waited for a day that no other king in the history of this island had ever chosen to be crowned upon. He was going to be crowned on Easter Sunday of the year 1043 the day of resurrection. The symbolism of that date and of the ritual is undeniable. I mean, this was that year, it was happening around about April the 3rd, so that's a change in the year, spring is starting, the weather is turning, the days are getting longer. It all ties together to this idea that the message Edward the Confessor was sending out that this was the resurrection of the old dynasty of Alfred the Great, the bringing of light into the darkness of this world, the symbolic power of Edward's coronation sent out all kinds of signals that this was a new start, a resurrection. Now, I'm not going to suggest that everybody bought into this, 
But enough did. When I was researching this episode, I, I, I read a great quote by one of the books I was using, and a historian said that ultimately, monarchy is the art of cultivating an awe that turns skeptics into subjects. And Edward is showing here, right at the start, the moment he's getting a crown on his head, he's using awe and ritual in a way that is designed to help him. And he had a flair for this, which we'll see later on in his life. Now, did it work? Yeah, it kind of did. But it has to be said that through the 1040s, Edward was going to need that PR support and that image because it really, seriously, really looked like God himself had some major issues with England. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle says in the year 1044, so only the next year after Alfred's PR campaign had been put into place, that, quote, this year there was very great hunger all over England and corn so dear as no man remembered before, so that the sestra of wheat rose to sixty pence, and even further, unquote. Well, that sounds like serious food shortages, and that the famine that had maybe started a few years previously was carrying on, causing a shortage of goods and the price to go up. And Hyperinflation isn't a good thing now, and it sure as hell wouldn't have been a good thing back in the 11th century. Behind that rather dry academic description of things written by a monk somewhere lies the horrible realisation that people were probably starving to death. Maybe, possibly, rich people as well as poor people. Because we know that over this year and the next few years, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle is filled with a plethora of dead bishops and abbots over these years. And the entry for the next year actually reads as follows, quote, This year died Elfwad, Bishop of London, on the eighth day before the calends of August. He was formerly the abbot of Eversham and well furthered that monastery the while he was there. He went to Ramsey and there resigned his life, unquote. So the Bishop of London was dead and he needed a successor. And who his successor was, that's a separate and longer story that I'm going to have to explain. So stick a pin in that, we'll come back to it. Just keep in mind, Bishop Elford of London had travelled to the Monastery of Ramsey and died there. And London and England was continuing to suffer from calamity. Because just as England began to emerge from this famine and food shortages which seems to have lasted a few years, all caused by seriously bad weather, we get to 1047. And the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle says, quote, After Candlemas came the strong winter, with frost and with snow and with all kinds of bad weather, so that there was no man then alive who could remember so severe a winter as this was, both through loss of men and through loss of cattle, yea, fowls and fishes through much cold and hunger perished." Unquote. This sounds like a total nightmare winter, 
And another version of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle reinforces this because it says, quote, there was all over England very great loss of men this year, unquote. So 1047, whew, that's as bad as it gets. And the calamity wasn't even over yet. The decade of disaster seemed to continue. The entry for 1048 says, quote, This year also there was an earthquake on the calends of May in many places at Worcester, at Wick and at Derby and elsewhere wide throughout England with very great loss by disease of men and of cattle all over England. And the wildfire in Derbyshire and elsewhere did much harm, unquote. Okay, let's just take a moment to just regroup here for a second and look at the situation. We've just had a multi-year famine, horrendous bad weather, nightmarish diseases of cattle and what sounds like an epidemic of some sort wiping out humans we have winters so cold they're killing at least dozens if not more and all of this has come after years of extreme floods and now we have wildfires and even a bloody earthquake the locations of places hit by the earthquake suggest an epicenter somewhere in the east midlands and a later estimate in 2008 by the British Geological Survey suggests it may have rated as a magnitude 4 or 5 on the Richter scale. There was a bloody earthquake. <sighs> when I said the rule of Edward had gotten off to an ominous start, I wasn't kidding. But what is interesting to note is that at the same time as all of this was going on, Edward was also contending with a bevy of issues, both foreign and domestic. And he was facing a political crisis, foreign policy crisis. Hell, he even had to face the return of Viking raiders. And it's been a while since we've had some of them. So his reign was indeed a resurrection. But for some, it could have felt like, oh God, here we go again. It's the carnage that Aethelred gave us all over again. And yet, it must be said, that over these years, Edward the Confessor began making changes to how he ran the country that ended up seeing London reconsecrate their alliance with the House of Wessex. London was to become loyal to this king in the same way it had been to his father. But we have to understand that while they were doing this, Londoners in the 1040s were facing some tough times. Year after year of awful weather, harsh winters and waterlogged summers. It was a decade filled with bad harvests. Food was short and what food was available was to see hyperinflation drive prices through the roof. And into this miasmic atmosphere of cold and damp, disease exploded. The animals who the nation depended upon for life sickened and died, rotten and decayed. And epidemics of unknown dispositions erupted and rampaged through a population hungry and malnourished where flood and harsh blizzards would see temperatures drop so low men and women would die from the cold, where brief overhot summers would see wildfires erupt and heaven help us, the land itself seemed to boil and shake. That's a lot to be coping with. And yet, it is clear that London decided 
that if they were going to have a fixed point in their city's firmament, something to navigate these dangerous shoals of uncertainty, I believe deeply that their fixed point was found through their full and zealous support of their king, Edward the Confessor. But to explain why that is, eh, that's going to need a whole separate chapter. So, I'm going to end this here. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope I was able to explain away some complex things in that one. Always difficult dealing with abstract thoughts sometimes. Now, unusually, I've got an announcement. If anyone is interested, I was actually interviewed for another podcast last week, a really fun experience I had with a lovely man called Zach. His podcast is called The Story in the Soil. It's a series about archaeology and the stories found in the archaeological records. Zach invited me on to ramble about the Vikings of the Irish Sea, the North Diaspora. And basically it's about an hour of me rabbiting on. And some of the materials I did cover in previous chapters of this podcast, but this is me without having to focus on London, so it spends most of its time on the waters of the Irish Sea. I was very flattered Zach allowed me to ramble like that, and if anyone's interested, there'll be a link to Zach's podcast included in this episode's description. As well as that, there'll be a link to the rough script I used to make this episode, and coming up next week, well, it could well be a rarely seen doubleheader week. There's a lot to cover in the reign of Edward the Confessor, and the years leading up to the Norman invasion are actually very exciting and very complicated, and to do them justice requires a lot of material. This whole episode basically began just as the introductory section on Edward, and I figured it actually deserved its own content, if only to expand on what the residents of London were going through while everything else was happening. So there will definitely be an episode out next Wednesday as per normal, but there'll probably be a bonus episode due later that week. Do make sure you are subscribed to the podcast on either Spotify or Apple to get an alert when it drops, and I'll see you next week for another chapter in the story of London. Thank you. Bye.